We have a very important message for today, and, and every message that comes from the Bible is indeed important, but I really think this is an important one because it clears up a misconception that a lot of people have. Um, a lot of people, um, most notably the Catholics, I think there might be some other denominations that might believe some form of this, they talk about um, something known as purgatory, which is the means by which after you die, you can be in a waiting period and somehow attain worthiness for heaven after death, either by your own efforts somehow in that purgatory state or by your friends and family praying for you that you would be found worthy of that. I am so grateful that John wrote in his uh, gospel that these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. There doesn't have to be any doubt. I sit before you today knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have eternal life. Is that because I'm some great person? No, all you have to do is ask the people that live with me and they will tell you that it's not because I'm a great person. It is because he's a great God. And so today, as we study this parable um, of Lazarus and the rich man, may we keep that in mind that this offer of salvation is available right now to all of us. But there's coming a time when we will all pass from this earth. Um, and even if uh, some of us don't die, uh, Jesus is coming back, so he's going to take us with him. Those of us who believe in him and those who don't will be left. Um, and uh, so either way, there's coming a time when a deci whatever decision we make, we will have to live with for the rest of our lives. And there's no fence in the kingdom of God. No fences. There's either heaven or hell. And we're going to see that through our passage today. And I hope that it will be an encouragement to you and if, and if you're feeling discouraged and you're feeling convicted, it's probably because the same God who created the world, as we talked about earlier, and the same God who stretched out His arms on that cross has them stretched out even today so that they can encircle you. He has made a way. We only have to accept it. And as was mentioned a few minutes ago, today marks the 15th anniversary of 9-11. I remember that day. And I remember it, there's nothing particularly that amazing about September 11th. You know, it was between any major holidays. There, the closest one to com coming up was Halloween and my family didn't observe it, so... Uh, there was nothing really to get excited about until Thanksgiving. So, um, so nothing really going on. And I was sitting in my room, working on my correspondence courses for college. And my brother ran down the stairs. He said, turn on the radio. Terrorists just attacked the United States. And when he said that, at first I didn't believe him. I said, you must have heard wrong. 
And so I don't remember turning on the radio, but I did go to one of my favorite news websites, and lo and behold, they were streaming live coverage of what was going on that day. And the world stopped. You know, Alan Jackson wrote a, wrote a country song called Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? And, and I really thought that was a good word picture for what happened because for the next few days, all anybody could see was rubble from those buildings. And the reason I bring it up here is because those 3,000 people, I'm sure some of them went to heaven that day. But I, I'm sure also that some of them went to an eternal hell. Because for 3,000 people, their final decision had to be made. When they walked into the World Trade Center that day, they had no idea that they would never see their loved ones again. For the people that were on Flight 93 that landed in a Pennsylvania field, they had no idea that they would be the last flight they would ever board. And it was extremely sad to hear uh, voicemails from people who were on that plane to their loved ones saying, I just called to say goodbye. And as tragic as that is, many of us don't get the opportunity to say goodbye to our loved ones because death comes unexpectedly. And so as we look at this passage today, we must realize that that is still occurring, that death still comes unexpectedly. Death is the scourge of sin. God said to Adam and Eve, he said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, of course, they didn't die physically that day, but they began to die physically for the first time. Until that point, they were perfect. There was no death in the perfect creation. So even though it was uh, elongated from that day, it was nonetheless true that they died that day and were separated from God. But God outlined a plan, even in Genesis, uh, whereby Jesus Christ would crush the serpent's head and would win the victory, and we're thankful for that. So let's look at our passage for today. Um, and my first, the, my first point in this story of rich, the rich man and Lazarus is appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at, or not as much now, but when I was a kid, I would look at what other kids had or what other adults had, and I would say, I wish that we had that. Particularly when I look at the cars on the road, and I would say, that is such a cool car. I wish we had one of those in our driveway. And now, realizing uh, the cost of cars and having to pay off a car loan, I realize that there are some wealthy people, uh, um, but a lot of the people that you perceive as wealthy because they have stuff aren't that wealthy. They're, they're paying, they're barely able to pay bills on the things they have because they wanted the nicest and the best now because they never learned delayed gratification 
And so it may look like they have this nice house or this nice car, but they may very well have bills that they cannot pay. And I think about that as we read this passage, because even if all their bills are paid, I think it was Nelson Rockefeller or someone like him who said, somebody said, how much is enough money? And he said, a little bit more. He was one of the wealthiest men on the earth at the time that he was alive. But he always said, a little bit more. Because wealth does not satisfy. So let's look at these uh, first few verses here. Um, and we'll be looking at Luke 16, 19-24. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores. And desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked the sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels into Abram's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now I want to be quick to point out that I don't think that riches are wrong. I think I remember uh, one recent message that I gave here where I referenced a, uh, a uh, verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that talks about instruction to the rich of the world saying don't be consumed by your riches. It doesn't say don't be rich. It says don't be consumed by your riches. Don't make your riches your priority. There are many wealthy people who use their riches to help others. One notable person like that is the founder of Chick-fil-A, S. Truett Cathy. If you ever get a chance to read his book, Eat More Chicken, Inspire More People, I would encourage you to do that. His model, or his model for the way that he put together his business was always with people in mind, first his customers and then his employees. Among his employees, especially his franchisees, if you will, or operators as they're called, because Chick-fil-A maintains a certain amount of ownership among, uh, 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 for every franchise among them. Their loyalty is basically second to none in the business world. Most people, when they get a high-up job at Chick-fil-A, do not leave. Because it's a place that they love to work. They get to have Sundays off for worship because that was important to the Kathy family. Um, someone once asked them, what's more likely, that you will start serving hamburgers or that you will be open on Sundays? And they said, we'll definitely start serving hamburgers before we're open on Sundays. So I just thought that was really interesting. But there are rich people in this world who are doing good with their riches. So riches is not the problem. But we see that this rich man obviously did not have his priorities straight because he went to the fires of hell. And this poor man, although he looked like he didn't have much, 
he went to the shelter of Abraham, Abraham's bosom, which was the precursor to heaven. The reason I say that is because heaven was opened when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. So we don't know much about Abraham's bosom, but we know that it was basically a precursor to heaven. So from the world's perspective, you look at the rich man and you say, that's who I want to be. Because they have it all. But there's a lot of rich people that would tell you that, that riches is nothing. Paul talks about that he was rich in worldly things. And he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he had all these things that were so great. And yet he said, I count it all loss. I throw it on the dung heap that I might win Christ. So it's good for us to keep this perspective that material riches are not all that they're cracked up to be. One of the things I, I joke about, and it's kind of half a joke, because it, it, it's only partially true, but I, but I joke about the fact that I'm glad to be poor because I know that my friends are really my friends. If you've ever read about lottery winners, you kind of read about how people come out of the woodwork and act like they were friends with them all the time because they want to get a piece of the pie. But I, I don't have a very I don't have very many pieces of pie, but I still have great friends. And uh, I think of what uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the film "It's a Wonderful Life," but in the end of that film, uh, Clarence the Angel gives a book to George Bailey, and in the inscription he writes, "No man is a failure who has friends." And I just, I just think about that, that one of the greatest gifts that God gives us are our friends. And the exciting thing about that is that we get to bring our friends with us to heaven if they've gone to the cross first. And surely we all have friends that we are praying for that they would come to the cross so that they could come with us to heaven. But I just think that is so great. So... The first point we're talking about is appearances can be deceiving. So, so don't look at what other people have and think, oh, they must have it so great. Think about what might be going on internally. It's kind of like the Facebook way of life. We see people's Facebook posts and we say, that looks so great. They must be doing pretty well. But the thing that we tend to do on Facebook is put forth the best of us. Nobody sees what we don't post. They only see what we choose to post. To bring it into the modern, uh, the modern way of thinking. So, can somebody look up Mark 8.36 as a cross-reference? Mark 8.36, if someone gets there, uh, they can go ahead and read that for us. I know this has been said before, but have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? I haven't. When a person dies, all of their stuff is left. 
And actually, one of the saddest parts about certain people dying is that their family then spends months and possibly even years fighting over who gets their stuff. But the stuff isn't nearly as important as the person. I've been to funerals where we're pretty sure that the person has faced an eternity in hell. And they're not nearly as hopeful or reassuring as the ones where we know that the person will hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Oh, they try to make it sound good. They try to, to, to talk about heaven and maybe even read a few Bible verses, but sometimes it's just words. Jesus said, Their lips profess me, but their heart is far from me. Jesus isn't concerned with what you say to me, with what you say to your friends here. He's concerned about your heart. Because that's what matters. It's not about walking an aisle. That's why I never give an altar call. It's not about whether you come up here after the service and say a few words. It's about what God does in your heart. Now that being said, if you want to come up and hear more about how to be saved after this service, I'd be glad to lead you to the throne of grace. But it's not a magic formula. It's something that can only be accomplished by the Spirit of God. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And as we think about worldly possessions, I wanted to share this quote by Sir Fred Catherwood. He said, Greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. We grab what we can while we can, however we can, and then hold on to it hard. If we would grasp the fact that it's not going with us, we would be more freely we would be more free givers. And I, I remember somebody telling me that if they were rich, they would give all their money. They would give a ton of money to the poor. But one thing that I've realized is that if I'm not giving with the little I have now, what would I do when I'm rich? It's not about the amount that you have, it's about what you do with what you have. And you know what? God says that if we're faithful in little things, He will make us faithful also. He will give us much. He will make us faithful also in much. But if we're not faithful in the little things, how can we expect for Him to give us more? That's something I, I was really convicted of a couple of years back. I was, like, I was always like, Lord, why, why isn't more happening in my life? And he was like, well, what are you doing with what is happening in your life? How faithful are you at the things that I have given you to do? And I've really tried to take that to heart the last couple of years. And he really has been faithful. Like I said, I, I never would have thought that I would be working at the potter's house. But I'm very grateful to be doing so. Okay, so the second point, first point was appearances can be deceiving if you're keeping track. The second point, 
is hell is forever. Now, there is, at some point in Scripture, a distinction between hell and the lake of fire. But neither of them are pleasant places. So for the sake of simplicity, just think of it this way. Hell is forever. Once we have made a decision, whether by commission or omission, to reject Christ, we have chosen eternal hell, and it is forever. This is such an important point. Um, it's way too risky to believe there might be a chance after death. And this passage here shows us very clearly that there is, in fact, not such a chance. It says in verse 25 of Luke chapter 16, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between me and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they who would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from that. Jesus was talking, no doubt, to the people, maybe even chiefly the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees thought they had it all right. But they were focused on earthly things. They were focused on the letter of the law, but they failed to see the Spirit. They saw a lame man who was lame from his birth walking around with his bed, rejoicing that he had been healed. And they said, doesn't the law tell you not to carry your bed on the Sabbath? God doesn't care about the bed. He cares about the man that was on the bed. And that's, that's the way we need to care. When the disciples were picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath, Jesus said, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, it's true that God told them to rest on the Sabbath. It's very true. But he also said, if your friend is in need, help them. That's not counted as work. They, they, they said that Jesus worked on the Sabbath even though he healed by the very words of his mouth. He didn't even have to touch someone. And when he did touch them, it wasn't like he did this, this majorly laborious thing because he could touch a man and that man would be healed instantly because the power of Creator God was in human flesh, in Jesus Christ. We talked about that this morning. Can you imagine the power of the Creator of the world was standing among them? John says in his epistles, That's what, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which our hands have handled. The Bible says that in the Last Supper, Jesus, that John leaned on the breast of Jesus. And John so loved Jesus 
and so felt Jesus loved that he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine the creator God? And that's the love that he has for each and every one of us. Yes, there is a great gulf fixed. But as I said, his, his hands, they stretch between the gulf. They bridge the gap between hell and heaven. And they say to you and they say to me, Come, whosoever will may come. And he says, Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's no greater promise. I get so excited when I read scriptures like that. Because he doesn't say, if, you, if you're good enough, come and I won't cast you out. Thief on the cross wasn't good enough. Thief on the cross was dying for his own deeds. And still he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said the sweetest words ever. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, today, not some indeterminate time in the future, but today you will be with me in paradise. My friends, when the time comes for me to die, I'll be with him in paradise before the next breath. What an exciting thing! What an exciting thing! But hell is forever. And so we need to make sure that we are prepared not to go there. You don't have to go there. I used to think about it like this. I used, people used to ask the question, why would a righteous God send people to hell? And I used to say, well, he sends them to hell because he can't stand sin. Then I realized just a couple of years ago, he doesn't send anyone to hell. He says, you don't have to go there. But we choose in our ignorance to go to hell. Because we say that we don't want to be judged by God. Just let us be judged by our own merit. You know those people who say that? They're going to be judged by their own merit and they're going to be found wanting. Because our merit does not get us heaven. Our merit gets us hell. Faster than we can even say the word. His merit gets us heaven. His sacrifice gets us heaven. His love gets us heaven. There was a preacher by the name of Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. And I agree that love wins, but unfortunately there was nothing about confession or repentance in the whole book. You see, love wins. But love doesn't win because we all get to just do our own thing. Love wins because Jesus came and died on the cross so that we could live. Love wins because those who believe in Him will be passed from death to life in a moment. That's what love winning is all about. Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 3, 
verses 18 and 19, an admonition of Paul, a warning, further information about a about decisions that may lead us to a Christless eternity. If someone could read Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Whose God is their belly. Who mine earthly things. And Paul's saying, I'm telling you, even weeping. Now, I know that it's widely believed that other people would often do transcription for Paul, but can you imagine if he was writing this with his own hand and the original scroll or whatever he was using actually Mudged because of his tears. I uh, don't remember exactly when reading the Bible became such an emotional thing for me. I remember when I was a teenager and I first came into the assemblies, there was a dear brother, many of you may know, know of him, Sid Patton. And he used to get up and read the scriptures in the morning meeting and he used to weep almost every time he would read the word of God. And when that first started happening, I was like, why would he do that? Not that it was necessarily a bad thing, just why would he do that? But then over time, I don't know exactly what happened, but it became something for me too where I can often barely get through reading the Word of God before I choke up. Because the idea that Creator God could reach down and pick me, as the song says, pluck me as a brand from hell. And not only do that, but call me to be His messenger. It's humbling beyond anything. And I'm just so grateful for that. And I weep for those who, whose God is their bellies, who, whose end is destruction. Paul is my Bible hero. In many ways, my heart is the same as his heart. I would that all men would be saved. Paul also said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. What is the terror of God? The terror of God is that there's a great goal fixed. That there's a place where you're going, where you're going to want someone to dip their finger in a cup of cold water and just put it on your tongue so you can feel a moment of relief. Because it's going to burn and it's not going to burn up. Like the burning bush. It's not a nothingness, it's a reality. We're all made to be eternal. We will be eternal. The question is, where will you be eternally? 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, Those who choose evil still have their choice. Shall have their choice. Men who hate divine mercy shall not have it forced upon them, but unless sovereign grace interpose, shall be left to themselves to aggravate their guilt and ensure their doom. They have loved darkness rather than light, and in darkness they shall abide. Eyes which see no beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ, but flash wrath upon him, may well grow yet more dim, till death which is spiritual leads to death which is eternal. What can be too severe a penalty for those who reject the incarnate God and refuse to obey the commands of his mercy? They deserve to be flooded with wrath, and they shall be. For upon all that rebel against the Savior, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 God's indignation is no trifle. The anger of a holy, just, omnipotent, and infinite being is above all things to be dreaded. Even a drop of it consumes. But to have it poured upon us is inconceivably dreadful. And it's infinitely worse than the picture that C.H. Spurgeon paints here. I really can't say anything more about that. He, he said what I intended to say. Which is, hell is forever. You make a decision whether you want to go there. You have a decision to make now whether you want to choose heaven instead. And some people say, well, what about those unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel? Do I believe God can bring some of them to heaven because they believe in God to the best of their ability? Quite possibly. But I am, you're not responsible for those people. Yes, pray for them. Yes, cry out to God that someone will send, send his messenger to them. But you are responsible for the message that you are hearing today. And I can tell you that if you trust Jesus Christ, you'll be passed from death unto life. But if you do not trust God, you shall not see life, and the wrath of God will abide on you. Do I say that because I want to? Do I say it because it's pleasant? No, I say it because it's the truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. The only way we can be free is if we know the truth. Luke 16, 27, our final point. The words and works of God are foolish to mankind. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have yet five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abram said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, <coughs> If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuaded, be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This was actually a prophecy. Because that's exactly what happened. 
when Jesus rose from the dead, there were people that intellectually assented to the fact that he actually rose, but they were so intent on doing their own thing and going their own way that they said to the people that worked for them, tell them you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. And they gave them money to keep it quiet. Not because it wasn't true. Not because the resurrection didn't happen. But because if it did happen, they had a responsibility to the true and living God, Jesus Christ. That's the point here. We don't serve a dead Savior in a grave. We serve a risen Savior with an empty grave. And as bad as his wrath is, and I know that's been the focus of the message today, please know that his mercy is sweet. As Fanny Crosby wrote, safe in the arms of Jesus, sweetly, my soul shall rest. He said, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he took the burden of the law and he cast it far away and he nailed it to the cross. And he said, you don't have to bear this burden anymore because my son did it. But he did rise from the dead and people still refused to believe on him. I often wonder why Jesus didn't just go to Caiaphas after he rose from the dead and appeared to him. And... But then I think about what he said about casting your pearls before swine. Jesus isn't going to go where he's not wanted. We've seen how it's affected our culture. We tell God, get out of the schools. We tell them increasingly, get out of the government. And then when people do heinous acts toward one another, we scratch our heads and we say, why would this happen? It's because we failed to realize that we are made in the image of God. That we have a responsibility to treat each other with the respect that comes from being image bearers of the Almighty. We grieve when children are killed at Newtown in that school a few years ago. But yet the same people who are grieving that, who are grieving that, failed to grieve that there have been almost 60,000 unborn babies whose blood cries from the grave because we've chosen that killing babies because their inconveniences is an acceptable behavior of the United States of America. It's a scourge. It's an abomination. And it should not stand. The Bible says that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, but sin is an offense to any people. So you want to know why we haven't been blessed as a nation? It's because we've turned our back from the Almighty God. And God says that justice is going to begin at the church of God. He wants us as a church to turn more fully to him. And then 
we can be a more example to the world at large. The disciples were unlearned. They were fishermen. They didn't even have all the Bible study resources we have. And yet the Bible says, and we'll, we'll, we'll read about this as we get into Acts, Lord willing, that they turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. That is what I want my testimony to be. To be one who is part of turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. It doesn't just happen. It has to happen through the Spirit of God. And I know, I've been there. I want to shake certain people that I love dearly and just wish for them to understand what I understand. But their eyes are blind, and only the Holy Spirit can open them. I'm sure there are people that prayed for Paul, and even more people that thought there was no way that Saul of Tarsus would ever be a believer. And yet, God miraculously saved him and gave him a zeal for Jesus Christ unlike anybody else in the early church. And the God that saved Saul and changed his name to Paul can save you and change you today. I want to close with this story it talks about being ready and paying heed to warnings it says during the revolutionary war a loyalist spy appeared at the headquarters of Hessian commander Colonel Johann Rall carrying an urgent message General George Washington and his continental army had secretly crossed the Delaware River that morning and were advancing on Trenton, New Jersey where the Hessians were encamped the spy was denied an audience with the commander and instead wrote his message on a piece of paper. A porter took the note to the Hessian colonel, but because Rawl was involved in a poker game, he stuffed the unread note in his pocket. When the guards at the Hessian camp began firing their muskets in a futile attempt to stop Washington's army, Rawl was still playing cards. Without time to organize, the Hessian army was captured. The battle occurred the day after Christmas, 1776, giving the colonists a late present, their first major victory of the war. God has given us a note of warning here in the scriptures. Many people ignore it. Many people say the Bible is nothing but a book fairy tales. But if everything I believed about the Bible is wrong, at the end of time, I will have lost nothing. But if you choose to believe that everything about this Bible is wrong and ignore it, and ignore the pleadings of God today, and fail to hear His voice, you will go to that place where Jesus says the fire will not be quenched. The flame dieth not. It's not something I want to talk about. It's something I have to talk about. Because I don't want anyone to go there. I'd much rather hear, have you come to heaven and be there when I lace up my running shoes. And run with me through the streets of gold. And one day return following Jesus 
to the new heaven and the new earth. Not because of me. Because of him. He is altogether lovely. And I hope that you can say with the hymn writer Philip P. Bliss, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul.
to think about that song and the last verse where it says even so it is well in my soul when I was a little kid I didn't really understand what that meant but see the Lord is going to descend and for those who have chosen to ignore him he will descend to exact wrath but for me and for you if you trust him he's coming to exact blessing. So even though he is descending, and even though for some that would be scary, for those who are redeemed, it is an exciting thing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for his moving among us today. We say with the hymn writer, it is well with my soul. And I pray for each and every one here that they could say the same. And if they haven't, that they would make a decision today to follow you. If they need more help, that they would seek it out from me or someone else here who would love to show them the truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.